The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. In case you missed it, we are excited to announce that the Curbsiders are now partnering with VCU Health Continuing Education to offer CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcu.org for more information. Yeah, the applause, they sound great on air. Uh, so we, we really appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, Paul, as always, I'd like to start off by saying this feels totally natural. Just, yeah, three friends sitting under bright lights trying not to sweat through a sports coat. <laughs> So uh, welcome back to the Curbsiders. Thank you, everybody, well, thanks, Matt. for coming here today. Uh, Paul, tell them, what, what do we do on this show? So we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. And we have what an expert we have for you. We're excited to tell you all about her. I don't think we're at that point yet, though. No. Uh, you know, t- uh, Stuart, did you have anything you wanted to say before we get to talking about our expert? This is totally backwards. Um yeah, just uh, kind of piggyback off of what Paul was saying. So uh, if you guys are interested, we do have lots of show notes and really interesting ways to present information. It's available on the website. You can search out the different kinds of episodes that we have to uh, download these show notes. are done by a professional team that is international. We have two international team members, so kind of like uh, Louisville International Airport. I think it has like one international flight. We are an international team. So... Uh, multiple different ways that these are presented. So if interested, just go ahead and go to, to the website. Okay. Sounds like an advertisement. And I think uh, we're, we want to spend most of our time talking with our guests today. So, Paul, why don't you tell them about our guest and, and we can bring her up here. Sure. Thrilled to. So I we are happy to have with us today to talk about our topic, Dr. Michelle Brooks. Um, pause for applause. There we go. Thank you. MD, FACP, FHM. She is an assistant professor and academic hospitalist at VCU Health, associate program director for inpatient medicine for the VCU Internal Medicine Residency Program, co-chair of the Laboratory Utilization Committee, and medical director for three inpatient house staff units. Her academic interests include social media and medical education, our topic for today, quality improvement and patient safety, medical television dramas, high-value care, and testing and antimicrobial stewardship. She is an award-winning clinician educator and has been invited as faculty for social media usage and medical education at several national conferences and is now here to talk with us. So without further ado, Dr. Michelle Brooks. Thank you. That was such a nice introduction. Okay, Michelle, so we're going to drop the formality. We can, we can go with first names for the rest of the podcast. Of Thank course. you. And why don't you tell the audience... Uh, if they don't know much about you, tell them something about yourself outside the world of medicine. They've just heard your bio, but what else, you know, tell us something else interesting about yourself. Is this my one-liner? Yeah, your one-liner. Uh, so I'm a 39-year-old Louisiana native turned academic hospitalist in Virginia. I'm kind of an ultimate hashtag fangirl of like everything, uh, which is somebody who's like obsessive and over- overexcited about a lot of stuff. Um, I am the wife of a wonderful and very sarcastic hubby and mother to a really energetic and just absolutely great six-year-old. Um, and I am an adult fan of Lego or an AFOL um, mm. and a hiker in my spare time. Like Legos, Legos? Like Legos, Legos. And I'm actually... Paul Nelson Williams' best friend. Or best friends. <laughs> and I have, like, proof on Twitter that shows that. You're so lucky. That's, <laughs> that's a position. Honor. Many yeah. have been vying for that position. Yeah, so yeah. To, to claim that, uh, yeah. You, it, yeah. It took you a long time to get a best friend. But, <laughs> True. But 44 years in, I've done it. Yeah. Uh, so thank you. This, this brings up, after the show today, if anyone wants to give Paul a hug, he loves sure, that. Sure, selfies, I'm on board. <laughs> Great. So I'm, I, I continue to amass book recommendations so I can feel bad about how I'm not spending my spare time. So I, I'm going to ask for a book every physician should read, can be medical-related, fiction, nonfiction, doesn't matter at all. Um, so I was actually introduced to this by Dr. Call in the residency program, but Crucial Conversations by Patterson is a book that um, talks about how to talk to people when the stakes are high and the, the conversations are tough. So um, we read it as a book club. I don't remember who was the chiefs that year, but... Uh, okay, Leah's, Leah's year. And then um, we tend to prescribe it to people that are having difficulty in um, communicating. And that could be faculty, residents, students, whatever. Um, it's like a prescription book. It's kind of like a life skills thing. It's not necessarily 
like difficult conversations with patients. It could just right. be how it's to talk to people. It's more just life skills. And the examples are most of, I don't think any of them are medical. I don't remember. I don't think any of them are medical. So, so, so I've got to ask about this only because it's in the script and you didn't mention it. Uh, you had put here teaching naked. I tried to find the book cover, but I have safe search on. Oh, that was going to be my pick <laughs> of the week. Oh, let's, let's not get ahead. So. <laughs> okay. And, and don't, don't be scared by the title. I'll explain. Did you did you want to ask her anything else, Stuart? Oh yes. Um, uh, what, what was your favorite failure or patient complaint or thing? <laughs> so I was thinking about this because I fail a whole lot. Um, I do QI and we call it like failing upward or whatever, falling uphill. And uh, one of my colleagues, Derek Liner, just recently tweeted an, a quote from an intern conference where they were focused on mistakes about. Uh, like if you think you're the king of the mountain and you're at the top and then when you stumble, you can only go downward. But if you realize you're on a journey and you're still on the side of the mountain going up, then you just take it as a stumble and continue going upward. So uh, I think my biggest failure perspective wise now it was um, I just failed to listen to an M3 student. They were concerned about a pathology report and I I like vaguely remember her saying something about it and then just kind of like dismissed it. And then uh, it ended up being a malignancy that uh, I missed a diagnosis. But then we kind of worked it out at our morbidity and mortality conference and our improvement conference. And we made a big change to the EHR on like how pathology reports are viewed in our system. And so I felt like a lot of good came from that. But I feel like I still should have just listened to the M3 students. So it's always good advice. Listen to your students. So, so would you say that that was your best advice? Uh, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Is there any other, so we've already been exposed to a lot of these people in the past 24 hours, but is there any great advice that you've gotten maybe while you were working here or just anywhere in your career that you wanted to share with the audience? Yeah, I I tried to steal this question. It didn't didn't work. (laughs) Well, so I think the best advice I got was just basically like, don't apply to four fellowships if you love everything. And like I already mentioned, hashtag fangirl, that's like going to come across a lot. Uh, if you love everything, just stay general. And so hospital medicine was good for me because it's a general field where I can see a little bit of everything. And, you know, it's a, it's a very general field, I guess. So. That's generally good advice. So don't, too. don't apply to four <laughs> fellowships. <laughs> like, Thank you, Stuart. Insanely helpful. I keep the commentary coming. <laughs> well, why don't we do some picks of the week? I think we have a little bit of time for that. And as, as always, I, I like to start with Paul Williams because he's just so eloquent. Yeah, thanks. Um, I think you jinxed me. So I'm, I'm going to recommend um, an HBO show that, that may actually go downhill, but I'm, I'm going to recommend The Outsider. I think Stuart had a hard time picking which yeah, The Outsider I, I, is I actually I wasn't sure which to. The Outsider it was. So. <laughs> so. There are a lot of Any of those sent, would be fine. He sent me a text message that says The Outsider. I mean, you can't go wrong with a Coppola movie, but I, I actually meant the HBO series that is currently happening right now. I will say it's based on a Stephen King book that I have not read and don't know how it turns out, and please don't tell me. Um, the pilot, at least, was one of the most thoughtful and sort of intelligently directed things I've seen in a while. The performances are great. It's very suspenseful. I won't get into it because we should actually get to substance. But um, if you have 10 hours to burn, uh, I would recommend The Outsider. Have you ever watched the Trace Atkins The Outsider? Okay. It's got John Fu. Stuart, what is your pick of the week? No, no, you're next. I'm next. Okay. Yes. All right. So my pick of the week is a book that... Um, currently reading. I'm like three quarters of the way through, so I feel comfortable recommending it. Also, it was recommended by Josh, Josh Hartzell on the podcast. It's called uh, Culture Code. It's right there. And yeah, there you go, by Dan, uh, Daniel Coyle. And I think this book, it's it just the, when I read nonfiction, I like to look for stuff that is just like insanely practical, uh, often coming from other fields and how can I apply it to my life and my work and what I do. And this book just talks about like uh, just fantastic cultures um, from real world examples such as the Navy SEALs, uh, certain startup companies, and how the people in those, how those cultures, how they interact. There's a lot of like feedback. There's um, how they build each other up. And then they're also, it creates this safe space where they can give really difficult feedback. Um, so this book is a quick read and, and I think it's just got a lot of really useful stuff um, especially if you're working in teams, which I imagine all of you are, if you're working in the hospital or just in in healthcare in general. So, yeah. So, so talking about insanely practical and useful. What do you think about cats? <laughs> uh, I after hearing you and Paul talk about it, I'm I'm really excited to see it. Yeah, I don't I don't make it out to the movies very often yet, and uh, certainly I would never take any children to see this movie. So yeah, I I, it, I'll have to wait for it on video. Okay. And then my pick of the week is a Netflix series that uh, 
I heard you talking about the the movie, the 1982 movie. I searched it up, and this is what popped up, and I thought it was the same thing at first, and it wasn't. That's kind of cool. Yep. Yeah. Classic. Well, the one from the 80s. I guess yeah, it's the 80s. It's, it's like one of the Jim Henson yeah. things. It's, it's the only Jim Henson one that apparently gave kids nightmares. Yes. Well, I think it... I think it's actually a requisite for all Jim Henson's giving nightmares. <laughs> Michelle, pick of the so, week. So now we can get to my pre four. I have no pictures of it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> pick of the week is Teaching Naked by Jose Antonio Brown. It's how moving technology out of your college classroom will improve student learning. And so this is kind of the basis for what we're going to talk about today. But it was recommended to me by Rebecca Jaffe over at um, Jefferson about three years ago. And basically it's... Um, thinking equally about the environment inside and outside of what he calls the classroom, what I call rounds and thinking through how do you engage learners in both um, parts of those environments um, equally. And then there's a lot of good information in there that's very practical about like strategies to do this. And then it did say that um, there's a whole chapter called podcasts are better than lectures. So I thought that would be of interest to Oh, Got this it. book immediately jumping the top of my list. Clearly, <laughs> so very. So do not do not let the title scare you. <laughs> very fantastic book. Uh, I can tell. Uh, okay, well, why don't we get to? Why don't we get down to it, Paul? Why don't you start us uh, off with a case? In this, the medicine grand rounds. Yes. Um, great. So we're going to bring to you a case. So this is incredibly naturalistic and natural. This is Soshana. Sosh Al Media, I hate that so much, <laughs> is a brand new assistant professor at Cashback Memorial Hospital. Sosh hates the idea of creating a profile on Twitter or Instagram and prides herself on having almost no digital footprint, and really good for her. She sees no point in wasting time scrolling Instagram or hearing about my cats on Twitter. So I, I guess in your role as sort of our, our social media and digital media expert, can you at least sort of start by talking about the, the landscape and sort of what platforms exist for, for Sosh to start thinking about in terms of how they might actually work with her career as a medical educator? Um, sure. So I will say, uh, not an expert at all social media. I actually looked this up on Wikipedia, and there's a social media platform for almost anything that you could imagine. Um, but I will talk about kind of the big things. So Twitter, which is like, I am hashtag eating a donut. Uh, or uh, Facebook, I like donuts. Um, Foursquare, this is where I eat donuts. So tagging your place. Instagram is here is a vintage photo of my donut. And then uh, YouTube, which is the video, social media, watch me eating a donut. And then LinkedIn, your professional, my skills include eating a donut. And then Google Plus, which is actually not anywhere out there anymore, um, but I'm a Google employee who eats donuts. So like, I think that's a pretty good summary of all the platforms that are out there. Um, but obviously there's Doximity and, um, and Snapchat and TikTok and some other things that I know I have limited knowledge about, but... But I would ask, is this something that it, when you're counseling uh, other faculty members or the trainees that you're working with, are you recommending that they have some sort of digital footprint? Or are you from the camp like, it's okay not to be on there at all? Well, I think, I think I'm of the camp. It's like, my job is not to convince you if you're totally anti-social media that this is where you need to be. My job is to to tell you about one way in which you can connect with mm -hmm. learners who are growing up with this type of um, platform, with these type of platforms on how to connect with them in certain ways. But I'm not, I'm of the camp that you probably already have a digital footprint. So having control over what that is and what it says is probably important. Part of your branding, I guess. Right. Yeah. The Kevin, Kevin MD, I think, I, I, I don't know if he was the first one to do this, but it was the first on my radar because of him. He had written a book about this, basically taking control of your digital footprint because there's all these websites that kind of put these like star recommendations out about doctors and it's hard for you to like uh, control what's what's put up there. It's often like negative things that like someone, like people that have had a negative experience are going to want to post something. So I think just like having some sort of taking control, whether it's a Doximity or a LinkedIn, I think those are good general places where you don't, it, there, there's limited, you can make that as much or as little as you want. But I think just having a profile picture, here's who I am, here's my job title. Um, there's various reasons why I think that's important. And so I do encourage people to have at least some sort of like presence. Well, I, and I'm also a little concerned that if you have no presence whatsoever, your patients are still going to search for you. 
Um, and so you need to understand what's out there. There's a website that's actually a little scary. I think it's the My Life website or whatever, where it shows like a profile that's based off of like all all of your your publicly accessed information and gives you a rating that's based off of what's available. And so if you have nothing available, it actually gives you a less influential or a not not influential but a less credible rating and your patient this is what your patients are looking at they're looking at that and vitals and rate my md and all this other wonderful wonderful air quotes uh stuff that is already defining you so unless you grab your your uh presence or who you are and define it for yourself someone else is going to define it for you and so that's one of the concerns that i have about not stepping out there yeah, and I think, um, like, I'm going to seem like I'm really an expert in this field, but I can also show you my origin story of how I got to. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a lot about Twitter because that's sort of my professional excellent social media platform. But and just so happens we have that one next too. Oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> great. Yeah. Um. So, so I guess I'm totally twittering or tweeting or twitting, and I'm still learning the lingo. Hashtag still learning the lingo. So that was my first tweet um in 2011 and then for several years um i tweeted two things i tweeted during march madness and i tweeted the grammys um and that was like multiple years in a row i was not on twitter i just did kind of those two things and then um and then i went to a conference and um this was like my first tweet from a conference of something i thought was very interesting which is that a beagle can sniff out C. diff with 100% sensitivity and specificity, which was at Hospital Medicine 2013. So that was a conference where I started looking at um, Twitter as a way to connect and network with other people at the conference that I was at and seeing what other people were learning at the conference. Is that true? Uh, It was in the updates of Hospital Medicine. It must be. Okay, so... (laughs) So reading between the lines here, it there's sounds some, like... There's some more to the origin story, but yeah, we can continue we, on. We are going to get to that for sure, because <laughs> I think it's it's very pertinent. Um, but it sounds like it started as a professional account, or, you, or personal, sorry. Yes. And then it sort of started to go towards the professional when you started tweeting about beagles sniffing out C. diff. That is correct. And then I would warn people that I was going to tweet the Grammys, and then now I've just stopped tweeting yeah. the Grammys. But. So let's talk about this, because um, I, I do want people to come away from this with like some practical advice on like how to approach this if they haven't been doing this. So what do you recommend? Um, do you separate out the personal and the professional from Twitter? Because anything you put on Twitter, your patients can search it, your kids can search it. Um, it's it's out there. Yeah. Um, so I I do. Uh, the lines blur a little bit. Like one time, I think I posted a picture of my kid wearing a hospital medicine conference mm-hmm. um, like name tag and being excited for the next year's conference. But for the most part on Twitter, um, it's just me and my professional. And then I have a Facebook and an Instagram and Instagram is like for scrolling for puppies and kittens and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And my husband always asks like, why are there no shoes on? Cause he is like Nike shoe thing. So, but puppies and kitties is Instagram, but. So, and I'd, I'd love to hear what Paul and Stuart think about this as well. My, my mother and sisters are, are teachers. And what a lot of teachers do is they'll use their first name, middle name as like their, uh, profile so that way they're not as easily findable to people uh, especially like students and things and they sort of try to separate the personal and professional I, I'm of the camp that I think that's a good idea um, like any of my social media is all I, I think it's it's all stuff that professional like I don't use swear words I don't give my political beliefs and, and things like that It's I, I try to keep it very much um, just kind of separated and I I don't post a lot, but I do. I just update my accounts so that like people can see where I'm working, what my job titles are. Because on LinkedIn, it's actually like LinkedIn can search. They want to know all the clinical assistant professors in the country right. in internal medicine, and they can search you and send you targeted emails. And you might hear about jobs that way. So it is. I think. I think just to have that, I, I encourage people that I work with that to have at least that. I think that's really good advice. I think if you want a great example of what your Twitter feed should not look like, you can look at my Twitter feed. That's helpful <laughs> to you. In part because I feel like the ship has sailed. Like it's, I, there's so much of, I'm in this weird space where there's so much of my personality that's already kind of out there in the world at this point that like people know that I'm grumpy and like cats and um, lean to the left politically. So like I'm not, I got nothing to hide at this point. I just trying to swear too much. But I think if, 
starting out in social media like our like our friend Soch is, it's probably a wise idea to actually separate those things a little more cleanly than I have. Yeah, so there's probably some good guidelines on best practices. And what you're saying is probably absolutely right. Like tweet as if your mother will read it um, mm. was the best advice I got. Um, not wanting to disappoint my mom, I try and keep those swear words to nothing. And, um, and recognizing you're creating this digital footprint and Twitter never forgets. So like, no. um, as we've seen a lot of times, somebody will change their position on a certain subject and then people will be like, but what about in 2011? Yep. Yeah. I can't, I can't wait for what about next 10 to 20 years to see politicians run for office. And then, uh, you just see tweets from like decades ago. I mean, this is going to be a treasure trove of like dirty, background information because yeah. you're not you're not thinking about it in in real time as you're tweeting it and uh or as you're you're posting on on other platforms as well i think the way that i approach it is if i can't stand behind what i'm saying that i'm saying to everyone else then why am i saying it and so i just have to be very cautious and cognizant that what i'm saying i i really need to be solid behind that um uh, and you you may make some mistakes, um, but uh, you know I think you, you do got to be cautious about what you're saying. Yeah, and I think um, before embarking on a professional account, um, maybe knowing that you're know thy institutional guidelines. So mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> second commandment of like first is you know tweet as if your mother will read it. Second is know what your institutional guidelines are and. Um, a lot of that, uh, I would say almost every institution will have some sort of social media policy. And a lot of it involves, you know, making sure you have a disclaimer and, um, you know, patient privacy, making sure you're protecting that. And uh, some people, I, I think, be, are wary of giving medical advice as well. So I think uh, some institutions have some sort of policy about that. Yeah, I think I think uh, that's an, that's an area where if patients are finding you on social media and asking you questions, I think that is an area where I would not touch with a 10 foot pole. <laughs> have, like, have I would you, stay away from it. Have you had that happen before where a patient reaches out to you? Um, I have not. Like, the biggest thing I get is usually friends asking me about their kids. Um, yeah. And, uh, like, I'm not a then pediatrician. Like, oh, so yeah, that's like, the, the best cop out. I love yes. it. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, <laughs> So let's, well, and I think we'll get more specifically into Twitter, but just in terms of social media broadly, are there, especially for our friend Sosh, who's just thinking about sort of delving in, are there negative aspects that we should think about? Are there, just so I think some of the concerns that people have is that it just may be a, a time soak, um, or is it even possibly detrimental to mental health? Like, for instance, Instagram, sort of the, the prototypic example, where you see people living their best lives all the time, that it actually makes you feel kind of terrible about yourself. And everything's filtered. Yes, right. So are there, what, what sort of, what counseling would you give someone who's starting out in terms of sort of the possible neg- negative aspects of social media? Uh, so I think for me, um, I would counsel, I, I think if it's giving them angst and anxiety, then that might not be the place <laughs> where Fair. you want to build your community or niche. Um, some people, social media is very anxiety producing. For some people, it's been like the opposite. I love, for me, again, hashtag fangirl of everything. Uh, I love it because I feel like the the community that I've found on social media, especially med Twitter is um, overwhelmingly positive and the networking that I've built there has led to very constructive um, projects and collaborations. And so for me, it's been overwhelming, overwhelmingly positive. It's not true for everybody. And I know even like pediatricians sometimes have trouble on Twitter or Facebook because they get like found by an um, anti-vax movement or something. So like, it's not the same for even every um, department. Right. I think there, there's been somebody, I, th- I want to say his name is Tristan Harris. Uh, I'll have to edit that out if that's not uh, what his name is. But I think he was, he used to work for Google and then he became sort of a whistleblower saying that a, a lot of the companies that are controlling social media and the internet are just really selling your time and attention and, and trying to keep you engaged where you, uh, they may be stirring up your emotions or they may just be wasting your time. So I, I think, um, I'm not an extremist on this, but I just try to be very thoughtful about like how and when I'm using social media and um, like this, these are tools. They're not meant and they're, they're tools and you, and just be clear with yourself about why are you using them? How, when, and how often are you using them? And just be 
try to be conscious of how much of your time it's taking because I, I do think there is a big risk. And for me, it, it, it ended up amounted to being where I don't have Twitter on my phone. I only have it on a desktop computer. So that way, like, I can't be like checking it in between patients or during the workday. Like, I just keep it and I check it like once a day or a couple times a week. Um, and and that think, works for me, but other, you know, I'm yeah, sure I think that's people. a great strategy. And that's um, a lot of my colleagues have done that as well, where it's not on their phone. So you're not receiving all those notifications. Yeah. Um, but there is some time to sit down and, and work on it if you f- feel so led. Yeah, but, th- but there's also ways to incorporate it, too. Uh, w- one of the ways that I've incorporated it on rounds before is that I would pose a question to to our team, and then if they didn't know the answer, I'd say, hey, let's, let's ask renal, or let's ask... Uh, the internal, the general internal medicine community, and by the time we're done with rounds, we have. There was one time we had like forty answers, and we had a consensus. And nephrologists came to uh, came together, and they gave us uh, like one consensus together, and like, yeah, this is what we would uh, recommend. They gave us uh, primary articles, literature. I mean, it was a whole day of academics after that going through the specifics of the question that we had asked. And so there's ways to approach it, but you've got to be very conscientious about how, how you're, you're utilizing that. Um, so I think this is moving us into like the next part. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll read us the next part of the case. So Sosh, she's uh, highly committed to med- medical education, but she's actually been disappointed in her teaching scores. She's looking for new ways to connect with learners. Um, so, And now we've kind of convinced Sosh that maybe this whole digital scholarship thing is something she should look into. And we thought Twitter would be a great place for her to start. So now we're going to talk about uh, a little bit about how we can specifically incorporate Twitter um, and Michelle, we're interested to hear, can you tell us a little bit more about your origin story of like how you started using it for your day job as a medical educator, clinician educator? Yeah. So the the first thing I started doing was um, I was working as the APD for quality and safety and I was uh, failing miserably at a lot of projects. So I started tweeting a hashtag um, QI in real time, which is how I met on Twitter, met on met on Twitter, and then in real life, Rebecca Jaffe, who was a, we were like mutual fangirls of each other, and so, um, and that is when it sort of became my professional account of I was tweeting quality and safety updates. Um, we did a project called Don't Bleed that focused on, um, obviously, the lab morning labs and decreasing, you know, duplicate tests and things like that. So, um, and it was an interprofessional work so we would take this group picture with like the nurses and everything so it was great um and it was a great platform for for me to um kind of disseminate work that I was working on um and then feel good about that work um by getting some positive responses from from other people in this small niche QI educator community right my, my understanding these are some examples of those tweets Is yeah that right? so uh, the first one this one you know, Rebecca's tweeting back at me that she was really excited about that and loved that with like lots of hearts. And then I actually met her in real life. So that's when we, that's the first time we met was at um, AIM week in 2017. But, um, and then this was an example of um, promoting the work of our residents in QI that year. And there's some of those people who are in the audience right now. So mm-hmm. excellent. And so how are you, how are you currently incorporating Twitter into your day to day uh, working working here um so good so i think the twitter naturally has a lot of um takes a lot of the adult learning theory things that you've talked about with people like gurpreet dhaliwal and that sort of brain training thing that are already built in so um it's definitely you can use it to flip the classroom so you can do a question of the day um like you said you were asking a question on rounds and then by the it was more like a consult by the end of the day you'd get a whole bunch of responses yeah, from, we, we can't call it consult now no no not a we consult. call it, we call it a curbside curbside <laughs> <laughs> well you forget our the, branding please I mean, <laughs> um and then yeah so i can't tell you i think with every patient that we see there's probably some clinical question that you have that the team has or that your medical student has and um i would say we probably don't get back to the majority of those on a daily basis so my goal for a question of the day is just to ask a question that comes up on rounds and get it um answered the next by the next day and i think the other thing that that teaches is how it teaches medical students sort of the real life effort of trying to find an answer 
um, for this particular patient and taking it into context of all of the other things that are going on with that patient. Um, so it, most of them start with up to date, but a lot of them go to the literature and some of the questions can't be answered in up to date. I like to ask about likelihood ratios and some other things to drive them towards like JAMA, um, rational clinical exam and all of that stuff. So can you give like a concrete example of like what, what that might look like, or maybe a rec- one from recent memory? Are you putting polls? Are you, are you cl- like uh, screenshotting something and highlighting? Like what, how do you, what, what sort of uh, technique? I don't, I try and stay away from the polls. So usually it's, um, I don't want to, I don't want this to be a competitive thing. So I don't want uh-huh. the first medical student to answer to like get the right answer and then that's it. There's no more discussion. So, um, but I do a lot of, um, I was thinking through like, what is the, what are the likelihood ratios for all of the criteria for, um, GCA or whatever Mm -hmm. giant cell arteritis. So like if you go, there's a rational clinical exam for that. You can kind of find those likelihood ratios and then we can have a discussion about why or why not we think our patient should be further tested for GCA. Mm Um, we've done everything. My, one of my favorite questions was like, what's your favorite triad? So we had a triad, we had like Samter's triad on our team. And then it's just like, what's your favorite triad? And then we had multiple people from VCU chiming in. Um, and then you get the occasional outside person also chiming in as well. So, and are you, is it generally where you're on rounds with your team, you come up with a question that you can't answer and you tell the team, okay, I'm going to send a tweet out about this later. Or you, oh, yeah. you tell them that they should, like, at the, at the first day when you meet with them, you say, follow me on Twitter. That's part of how you're going to get some of your teaching. <laughs> I have a handout called the Twitter games. The There's Twitter actually, game. like, three things that we usually do. One is the question of the day. Um, if they're not on Twitter, I, I try and get them on qu- Twitter. I don't mandate it. It's completely optional, but it's a fun way to engage with students outside right. of the rounding period. And so, um, so the question of the day, we do a f- reflection on rounds, and that can be anything. It could be something a medical fact or a tidbit that they learned, or it could be something that they're learning socially, or a lot of them will reflect on, you know, that they saw the resident do a great conversation at the bedside and wanted, want to emulate that or whatever. Um, so it's interesting to see what people reflect on at the end of the day. And then um, the third thing is post-it pearls, which um, that's actually one of my favorite ones, because you could do that and not post on Twitter and you'd still be learning something from this lecture. So uh, basically it's very low tech post-it notes that I provide for them. um, And they um, have to come up with a teaching point related to one of their patients and then teach the team on rounds. And then usually they take a picture and post it on Twitter for Mm -hmm. hashtag post-it pearls. And and there's a few examples of that. Um, I'm going to skip forward in the slides because we've jumped around so much, but uh, so um, before we get to that, can you just kind of walk us through what to expect on Twitter? So just by just the anatomy of the tweet and what what is this, what does all this mean? Oh, sure. Um, so anatomy, there's anatomy and physiology of a tweet. So anatomy is like what, what everything means. So you have your avatar, which is your picture, your name and your um, your username or your handle um, is the at something. Mm-hmm. And you, you've mentioned hashtag. Yeah. And uh, that's. So that creates a link um, to similar content. So you could just click on that and anything with the hashtag med Twitter would pop up. That's, That's okay. the anatomy. And then the physiology would be people interacting with that tweet, right? So how it acts on the Twitter space. Um, so you, people could like it, they could retweet it, they mm-hmm. could reply to that tweet. Um, there's, you know... Um, obviously metrics and things that, uh, go with that, but yeah, that's the physiology of okay. how it interacts on Twitter. Yeah. All right. You want to talk about this? Yeah, <laughs> you should probably mention why this giant head's behind us. <laughs> I, I always, I have like a love hate relationship with this blog post because it comes up a lot, but like, I also think it got a lot more attention than it maybe deserved. So I have kind of a love hate relationship with it, but, um, yeah. So this, is Dr. Milton Packer who, um, felt like Twitter was probably not the best place to get your academic medicine information is the gist of the article, I think. Yes. Uh, this, this is a super accomplished researcher, maybe did Paradigm HF. Uh, right. And so like super accomplished researcher was just kind of did a blog post about why. Did he have a Twitter account? I um, don't, he, he did. He did. And he, he went did. on Twitter to look and do some research, I guess, on his own. 
and then came up with the conclusions that like if Twitter is your primary source of reliable and right. up-to-date medical and scientific information and discourse, then you're probably practicing emotion-based medicine. So EBM, yeah. not evidence-based medicine. So well, I feel like he got slammed because like, He's he's an older gentleman who uh, talked talked bad about Twitter, and he just like this picture just so ripe for like just uh, you know coming after him. But uh, I don't think I, you know. I think it was I think it was an interesting interesting take on it. But uh, it does seem like there is some stuff going on in Twitter that's pretty useful. You've already mentioned how you're incorporating it into your rounds. What other things are people in like the academic world using Twitter for? And is there I, we'll get into the evidence, but well, can I can I update? Yeah. I, I went and I went to see. I went through a, a couple more of his blog posts to see okay. if he had like changed his position did on he? Twitter because yeah. that was a couple years ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he did not. But okay. now he thinks that academic journals are similar to Twitter, and I and, uh, they, he considers them a sluggish form of Twitter. Well, yeah. So, so I thought that was interesting in that like. Now, I don't know where we're going to get our information. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's the publication bias all over again, just in real time, essentially, with uh, academic medicine versus Twitter. It's just whatever is at the forefront. Um, before we, we, we I, I kind of wanted to like backtrack just a little bit because we were talking about uh, his perspective on the downsides of Twitter and just kind of wanted to expand upon that first before we get into what the advantages are or how, you, how you've been using it. Um, so this is uh, uh, adapted from what what you had sent to us, um, and want to ask you more about your thoughts on the downsides of Twitter as far as using that to disseminate medical information. So yeah, it's not peer reviewed for the most part. Um, so there are some examples of how content has been curated and found to be lacking in certain ways, but for the most part, you're you're just seeing information that people are putting out their content. Um, it can be overwhelming. It depends on how you manage your feed, though. Um, so you can only, you, you only get information from who you follow. So right. you can definitely limit the amount of people you follow. I think Gurpreet Dhaliwal is a good example of that. I don't think he's ever tweeted, right? He's, well, he's tweeted like two... Wait, whenever he tweets, he'll tweet something, and then like a week later, he'll delete it. So yeah. you, you've got to be like right there for okay. that moment. Yeah, so... Stuart's um, just waiting. He's got yeah. an alert set. Like, but in my like, mind, he's only following all of the diagnostic reasoning <laughs> right. stuff and but journals got, that are posting yeah. case reports. And like that's that's probably the way he manages his Twitter feed, right? Yeah, I'm sure. So, I'm sure. I haven't um, asked him that question, but I'm sure. There's also ways to do that within Twitter that are, are Twitter lists. So you can go right. and create lists of different people. So you can manage that. But it is it can be information overload and overwhelming to kind of be like, I missed all of this information that has been tweeted since the last time I logged in. So so why should a medical educator or a physician get on Twitter, though? You had mentioned a few ways about how they use it, but what are some of those advantages they can use, even if they're not necessarily um, uh, putting out some of the, the tweets that, that you were talking about? Like, why should I even recommend it to somebody? I think you're gaining access to this vibrant med-ed community that's on Twitter and you're hearing other people's ideas and um, it's a way of disseminating work that a lot of times there are publication biases against. So you can get something out there, get it at multiple institutions and then figure out how to write it up that way, um, figure out how to evaluate things by getting um basically access to experts in, in med-ed. Um, and, and this is kind of an example of that. I had a uh, medical director that had been working for me for a couple of years, and I thought he was very stellar at what he did, and he wanted a job at OHSU. So I reached out to them, got him an interview within about a week and a half, actually, with that specific facility. Now, ultimately, he didn't decide to get a job with them, but did get a job with a competing uh group in that same area and is very happy with that but because of the network that we were able to build we were able to actually reach out and gather um, some uh, uh, references in the local network that could get him those uh, those interviews it was ridiculously quick I just I couldn't believe it and I think you're mentioning something um, that's really important which is a lot of our clinician educators here at BCU are sort of homegrown they were here as residents they became chief residents or right. on faculty. And so um, how do you, when you're up for academic promotion, figure out how to get letters from people from other institutions 
um, that can comment on your work. Right. So Twitter has been the only way that I can do that. I actually meeting Avi and, um, you know, like we met on Twitter and then we collaborated and met in real life yeah. with these workshops and things like that. So they're Avi O'Glasser and Charlie Ray and Tony Brew have collaborated with all of them and yeah. they can attest to some of the work that I'm doing. Yeah, there, there was actually a review article that I was working on. Uh, in pulmonary medicine, and I just put it out there on Twitter. If any R2s or R3s wanted to work with me on that that article, and I found an R2 in California, I'm in Texas, who was working with me. It's still working with me on the article, and it's going to be published within the next few months. So, I mean, these are just wonderful ways to network out, especially if you're in an institution that maybe doesn't have the research arm. You can uh, ask for, hey, I'm looking for these opportunities, and they're out there. It's just like... You got to put yourself out there in some way, shape or form. Well, and I think one way that Twitter has been um, Twitter and social media in general has been particularly beneficial is for underrepresented minorities to find um, their communities as well. And like a, a woman surgeon, we have plenty of women surgeons here, but that's not very common. You could be at an institution where you are the only female surgeon out of your group. And how do you connect with other women surgeons to see are you guys dealing with the same issues about trying to get our kids to daycare and whatever? Like, how do you connect with other people? So I think social media can be a, a great way to do that as well. Uh, so Tony Brew does a lot of these things called tweetorials. Want to know if you could maybe talk about that for just a second? What are what is a tweetorial? Um, when we're talking about, it's it's helpful for me to think of the this in a framework. So the bottom part being. Um, you're just lurking. So you're just a spectator. You're uh, just taking in content, basically. Um, And then the second part being you're able to discuss the content. So replying to people, retweeting, things like that. Um, The third part, you're promoting your content or content within or promoting content from other people. And the fourth is you're creating. So Tony Brew created this methodology of basically going through and and um, teaching on a very specific question. Um, and he's done like 45 or something, a lot, right. 50 tweetorials. And basically it, it employs a lot of the adult learning theory that we've kind of talked about, which is it'll do a poll at the beginning, like how much do you know about this basically? And um, it'll ask a question and see if you get the right answer. And then it'll go through and teach you. And then at the end it asks a similar question and s- sees if you, if you actually learned something or if you've translated that to the knowledge so um and they're they're pretty interesting and they range of topics and so they're pretty incredible but it's usually a thread of about and a thread being you have one tweet and then you have a a sub i guess a sequential subsequent yeah Yeah, not subtweet (laughs) not subtweet but uh the next tweet and they're all kind of linked together and um so you can kind of see the whole thread and then um and then what's interesting is i've been thinking about that sort of modified Bloom's taxonomy that we have for social media um, about being create being the top. And then I think Adam Rodman came and did something that's even really cool, much cooler than anything I've ever done, which is he had a student that he mentored in creating a tutorial that was awesome and is something that I can use now to teach my students about likelihood ratios and stuff. So I think there's... Uh, the tutorials, I think, are game changers because it's basically you've got access to this content and you can just have a really high level discussion with your learners about what what the answers are to those and questions. And it's, it, it's providing the, the appropriate references and sources. I still think my favorite one is why does the stomach not digest itself? Yeah. But uh... Well, I, I think we should leave a little bit of time for questions from the audience. And uh, th- certainly we can we can talk about some more of this stuff. But Stuart, did you want to... Walk out into the audience and yeah, sure. uh, see, does anybody have any questions? Uh, if you don't want to get up and walk over, then you can just yell it out and Stuart can repeat the question. But we'd love to to answer any questions. All right. So uh, what's your name? Where are you from? <laughs> hey, I'm Megan LeMay. I'm from here, VCU. Um, and uh, my question is about, um, so it's funny that you were saying like tweet like like your mom will read it. And when I've uh, put things online, I've sort of written them as if only my mom's going to read it, like no one else is going to be interested in reading this. And then if it gets picked up and shared more broadly, um, like I was completely unprepared for the kind of backlash that might be associated with that. So I'm curious if you were 
anybody else has experienced that backlash and how to handle it? I don't think anything I've done has particularly gone viral. <laughs> um, but I have heard uh, from people that um, that there there is sort of like, my experience, is, like I said, has been very positive, but there's been people that that's not the same experience that they've had. And so I think it's, um, I guess with anything, I would say, does, is that enough for me to completely like remove all of the benefits that I've had from being on this, being involved in this vibrant social media community? And so I would have to just reevaluate that at the time. There was a researcher um I'm trying to make this non-specific so I don't get myself in trouble again, Who, whom I, I really respect a lot and wrote a New York Times op-ed piece about uh, decision fatigue, which I think is very interesting, and about how as, as the day progresses, you're more likely to give an inappropriate antibiotics or maybe less likely to screen for, for um, age-appropriate cancer screening. But the way the, the title of the New York Times piece was like, you want better care or see your physician earlier in the day? And I was infuriated by that and just put out some random tweet. And it got picked up way beyond expect, because I complain all the time. That's kind of my thing. But it, it just... <laughs> It snowballed and got picked up and retweeted and tweeted until eventually the author of the article replied to me. He's like, well, that's actually not what I meant. Like, and I, I by no means meant to criticize the person, but yeah, everything, it, no, nothing ever goes away. And just be careful what you post because you never know what's going to actually take off and kind of get you in trouble. So just be, tweet like you're expecting everyone to actually read the thing that you're going to be tweeting because it, it, it can come back to you. I, I don't know. I, I don't think I, I'm a little argumentative at baseline. So if someone wants to be snarky and be argumentative, I just welcome it. But that's just me. Um, so I, I, I do think you gotta, uh, if, if you find yourself in that situation and it's affecting your, your mood, mental health, you just walk away from it. Um, I don't know. I, I don't really have really great advice for that. It's really hard. Matt, you don't ever tweet. I don't know. We, we had an episode of the show where we talked about urinary tract infections oh, yes, with uh, a geriatrician. Uh, and it was three men talking about urinary tract infections and uh, not having had any. Um, the, the the main point of the show was coming from a geriatric geriatrician point of view, like don't blame every altered mental status or fever in the right. elderly on a UTI. Right. But what what came off was we were saying that acute cystitis was it, not painful. Was is not painful yeah. or is not bothersome and doesn't need to be treated. And uh, even within our own team, the women on our own team were like, "Yeah, I was bristling at that." Hmm. And we issued an apology, and then we had future shows where we we talked about it, and now we're talking about it again now. So I think it's just like I think just saying like we're sorry. Um, you know, I can see how this was misinterpreted, or I can see how this was offensive. I mean, I think an apology and some humility goes a long way. Um, and then there's uh, also sometimes people are just crazy and looking for a fight and there's some of that out there. So, uh, we've, we've been insanely lucky though. People have been really supportive and, and mostly just overwhelmingly nice to us about everything. Any other questions? Uh, okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, what's your name? What's your favorite color? Oh, um, uh, Casey and Lavender. Hmm. So um, I'm actually on uh, the Chess social media uh, work group, um, and it's been opening a lot, lot of doors for me. And I just wanted to, wanted to know if you guys had any comments on um, joining on national uh, societies and their so- social media networking there. Like your lanyard, it says NASA. I, I think one thing that I'm considering, and I haven't talked to my husband about this yet because it's kind of a time commitment, but there's there's actually like a social media fellowship through <laughs> through SHM that I'm actually considering. It's a new thing. Um, I think the first class will be this year and it's like a year long, um, remote study with, uh, projects in the interim. So I've been considering that. I know, um, I know a lot of the people on the social media for hospital medicine because they always like email me to see if I'll tweet out some stuff. So, um, but, uh, I think it's a great way to get involved at a, at a junior level, a student resident or junior faculty, um, at a national at a national organization. I think it would be a great way to get into that. Awesome. There was, was there another question? All right. Okay. Uh, what's your name and what's your favorite animal? Uh, my name is David Goldberg. Favorite animal is... Oof. You don't have to answer that, by the way. <laughs> we go with lion, king of the jungle. So um, <laughs> my question, uh, it's hard to stay out of politics these days and anything. And in medicine now, ACP last month talked about single-payer system and brought forward two ideas about moving towards that. Uh, it's kind of hard for us to stay out of that. Is just 
where if do you all try to avoid tweeting about those things? I guess as medical educators, but I feel like as uh, our patients look to us as leaders and how do we approach something that's so controversial? I do think advocacy is a great way for physicians to be involved in social media. Um, so um, just recognizing that there may be it's it can sometimes be polarizing. I think a good example of that was the when the NRA kind of called out physicians and you know stay in your lane uh, and that that whole hashtag this is our lane um, that kind of blew up overnight. Um, I think that was a great way um, for physicians to advocate for gun safety and gun control. But for me, it's like a personal decision about uh, the choices of what to advocate for and when. And so I think that's going to be different for every person. But it is, I think it is a way, I think Twitter is a way for for physicians to advocate for causes um, that affect our patients. So that's... Yeah, absolutely. We we might have time for one more question. We're good? Okay. (laughs) All right. So we can... uh, Maybe we'll we'll sign off here. Uh, we can hang out afterwards if if people have other follow up questions. But I want to be respectful of everyone's time. So, uh, Paul, did you want to do the outro? Well, I actually have a pun for you first. Oh boy. Yeah. So the the pun was uh, why was Napoleon so unpopular on Twitter? Yeah, it's because he uh, never retweeted. That's okay. Legitimately, my favorite one that you've done so far. Um. I mean, you got a groan from the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> My ass okay, it. Paul, let's All do it. Right. Well, this has been another episode of the Curbsiders. We're giving a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> Strong. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, Paul, because we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, no longer iTunes, or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs, Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. Thank you, Stuart, for producing our theme music. And thank you to Claire Morgan at Notterly for editing our audio. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And thank you to Alan Dow for uh, assisting with that. Yes, thank you. Thank yes. you for the introduction, Alan. I've been Michelle Nalapa Brooks. Again, strong. And I remain Paul Nelson Williams. Thanks. Goodbye. In case you missed it, we are excited to announce that the Curbsiders are now partnering with VCU Health Continuing Education to offer CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcu.org for more information.